Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I grew up in Ukraine and Belarus, and when I was 12 years old, my parents and I moved as refugees from the Soviet Union to the United States. These days, the news is no doubt full of heartbreaking stories about Ukrainian refugees. But Lyra Boroditsky came to the United States as part of an earlier wave of Ukrainian refugees, escaping the Soviet Union. When they arrived, Lyra and her parents didn't speak much English. I really was determined to speak English well. I had been a very verbal kid, And it was very important for me to be able to make a joke and to be able to express myself clearly. And I just felt so trapped inside uh, my head when I couldn't speak to other people, couldn't communicate what my personality was. She saw learning English as a necessity. It was what would enable her to understand the culture of her new home and to share her personality with her peers. In other words, it's what she thought would allow her to move forward in her new life. So Lyra made a plan. To me, it was extremely important to get going in the language. And I told my parents I wouldn't speak Russian for a year until I learned English. And that's exactly what I did. I just switched completely to English. After the first year, my English was pretty similar to the way that it is now. This early experience sparked Lyra's love for the study of languages. Today, she teaches cognitive science at the University of California in San Diego. And she studies how language affects the brain. Her experience really struck a chord with me. I also grew up in a multilingual household where English was not the primary language when I was a child. My parents are both Indian immigrants. So even though I grew up in Michigan, we primarily spoke Hindi at home. When I was a kid, I was amazed by how language works and how my parents could toggle so easily back and forth between languages. And you know what? I'm still fascinated by it. So in today's episode, we're going to explore the power of language. Why does language learning come more easily to some people more than others? What does the brain of a bilingual person look like compared to a monolingual brain? And could there be any health benefits that come from knowing more than one language? I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and it's time to start chasing life. the majority of the world does speak more than one language, which makes me also think that maybe humans are actually born to not only speak language, but we are born to speak multiple languages. John Schweder is a professor of Spanish linguistics and cognitive psychology at the Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario. His interest in the mysteries of language and the brain started young. I was always intrigued, even in childhood, with how other people were speaking and understanding each other. I I remember like I was five or six years old and and my parents were watching a movie and there was this scene where I I think they were speaking Mandarin and I thought, well, what, what is going on here? It seems that they're understanding each other, but I can't. And I also remember my grandfather um, had had a stroke 
And there were words that he couldn't pronounce afterward very clearly anymore. So, you know, I was always interested in what is going on in the minds of these people who are speaking something I don't understand, or in the case of my grandfather, where, you know, the pronunciation has been affected due to some kind of trauma. I love that story, John. And I can tell you that, you know, you and I may have more in common than people may first realize. My grandfather had a stroke um, when I was in my early teens. And that was really, I think for me, what got me really interested in the brain, kind of like you became very interested in language. And he developed a specific phenomenon, but basically he could write, but he could not read. So it it was it was sort of a, a remarkable thing. Like, where is language actually in the brain? Because, you know, functionally, we think about it as being linked to the left frontal lobe and even temporal lobe and expressing yourself as the anterior temporal lobe, receiving language a little bit more posterior. But it seems like, you know, there there's more to it, right? I mean, what areas of the brain are really involved in learning and then processing? While there is really no one place that language calls a home in the brain, even in the case of those who speak one language or those who speak two languages, we do see that there are several areas that are involved with doing different things with language, like speaking, listening versus learning as well. So for for instance, when we just simply write a word, we read a word, we say a word, we hear a word, all of these actions are going to correlate to different areas of the brain. So it's very difficult to say that language is in a certain spot because it it really is not. It's going to depend on the task at hand. But we've known this for quite a while, since the 1800s. There are two particular areas of the brain that are, for the most part, associated with language production, whether it be speaking or writing, and that's Broca's area, and language comprehension, so reading and listening, and that would be Wernicke's area. Is there a time that is agreed upon when humans start to learn language, period? Is it around one year old? Because one year is when I guess people often associate people saying their first words, but probably it's a lot earlier than that, right? Absolutely. It's even before birth. There's research showing that from the womb, fetus are sensitive to the language around them. So after they're born, the baby's not only more responsive to the specific mother's voice versus another mother's voice, but it's also sensitive. It also shows different reactions to hearing that language they've been hearing from in the womb, albeit from really bad acoustic (laughs) uh, situations, from other languages that that they hadn't been exposed to from the womb. So there are patterns, there are sounds that, that are still picked up. And they start doing the da 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 these these cooings and 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 these vocal play stuff, and I know caregivers are often happy about that first word coming out, but really uh, often in the case the da da is not a meaningful word to the baby. It is just it's it's a vocal play. It's among the easiest articulations to make the da versus the ma, so that's probably why one is more common than, than the other. I'm not going to tell my wife that last part that you just said, because I was fully, fully convinced that they, they were saying da-da <laughs> as their first word, and I'm happy to take it, you know. But my wife, you know, when, when she was pregnant, she would have me, you know, speak to the baby in utero. You know, I would, I would 
just put my my mouth there next to her her belly and and sort of talk to to our unborn baby. I mean, is that really making a difference in terms of language acquisition in utero? Absolutely. It, it just like anything the mother is exposing herself to. If if she eats a lot of garlic, the baby is going to be less sensitive to garlic and onion than other babies who weren't. So I think it's it's what's going on around the mother that is going to really have an effect on that ongoing development. You know, my mom spoke several languages. It was interesting because she grew up in what is now Pakistan. And there, she was primarily speaking Sindhi there. And then as she moved when she was a young child, she started speaking Gujarati and then Hindi and and all these other languages. And she really does sort of toggle, you know, back and forth. Given that, you know, she she was exposed to this at such a, a young age, is is that different in terms of being bilingual or even trilingual or having multiple languages? The time that you learn them, are you more likely to be bilingual or, or have multiple languages under your command? Yes, absolutely. Age is is one of the primary factors that contributes to the ultimate attainment of the second language. So you may have heard someone who started learning the second language at age 20s, 30s, and they, they seem to have an accent, in, you know, a foreign language accent in the other language. Yet their grammatical structures, their ability to add the ing on a verb to, uh, to make it a progressive type of action is perfectly intact. So it's, it's kind of hard to say whether age is the ultimate culprit or enemy, although it, it does help. So in I could say that the early bird gets the worm, but it's really never too late to learn. Yeah, you may have an accent, <laughs> but you know you can still be native-like sounding. I, I like that, by the way. The early bird gets the worm, but it's never too late to learn. I, get, I think I'm going to use that, John. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> are there people out there who are just naturally gifted at learning other languages? Yes, absolutely. Uh, just like any discipline or talents, we, we find individuals may be more specialized for, for music. We also find that there is a special talent for language. That also doesn't mean that there is a limitation for others who don't have that special talent. It, it may be that they just have to work a little harder to have that ultimate attainment to the same level. Individuals that are motivated to learn language, just like motivated to learn anything, will have a better likelihood of, uh, of learning that language. And there are a couple types of motivations we can, we can identify. One is, for example, if someone wants to learn another language for professional reasons, they want to change jobs, okay, that's fine. But they also may want to learn another language to integrate themselves within a society or to speak with their grandparents who don't speak much of that, that language they do. And that's an integrative type of motivation. That second one is more powerful than just doing it, you know, for a grade or to get a job. Now, here's something that I found really interesting that I learned from John. Researchers have found that knowing a second language can actually delay the onset of dementia by four to six years. Think about that. That's really amazing. When a second language learner learns a new word in another language, it's very likely that there's already another word that exists for that concept that they're learning. So just take the the example of the new Spanish word for cat is gato, and the individual is trying to learn gato. 
But what needs to happen is that the mind must establish a new connection between the picture of a cat in one's mind and the link to the word that maps onto it. And that link is in another language. It's the new word gato. And so a couple days later, if we just simply hold up a picture of a cat, we ask them to name the picture and you say, name it in Spanish or name it in English. Either way, they're decoding the picture and then they access that concept. But then wait, that concept has two possible words that they can give me. So since they're only supposed to give me one, they have to actually suppress the other possibility because these two things are mapping onto the same concept that I'm asking them to utter. So that constant experience with separating the two languages in the mind is, is what gives these superior cognitive functions that, that do seem to have lasting effects on, on the brain. Um, things like our ability to focus attention, switching between tasks or ignoring distractions are all things that can happen. Is this the concept of, of cognitive reserve? exactly what I was going to say. This is uh, our brain does seem to store power, um, not just not just from bilingualism, but as an as as a really sophisticated organ that it is. It will store some energy for a, a rainy day, and when that rainy day comes, we have aging effects. It can pull out of the back pocket some ways of countering those effects. And bilingualism and the fact that they are doing this juggling, um, even just learning at age 60 and then juggling it for a few years, it, this cognitive reserve can provide some protective benefits towards the onset of Alzheimer's or, or another type of dementia. If they had been bilingual, um, research shows that the onset of those symptoms may be four to six years later. But it doesn't necessarily say that you're going to get dementia at a slower pace once it does have an onset. Listen, to be fair, there are many factors that impact the onset of dementia. But this idea that learning a new language may cause the brain to grow and change in ways that benefit our well-being is really worth paying attention to. And there's more. What if the language we speak could change the way that our brains think? There's not just one way to see the world. We have 7,000 languages. That's 7,000 different realities. That's ahead after this break. And now back to Chasing Life. Do people who speak different languages see the world in the same ways? Do they remember the same things? Do they pay attention to the same things? Do they feel and experience things the same way? Or are those things different because of the structure of the language, because of the things that languages force us to pay attention to or invite us to pay attention to? Remember Lyra Boroditsky from the beginning of our episode? Today, she's one of the leading cognitive scientists working in a field called linguistic relativity. It's this theory that language can influence our thoughts and our decisions. Language is certainly a powerful cue to a lot of things, right? So for a lot of bilinguals, one language may be associated with youth or childhood and family, and another language is the language of work and adulthood. That's true for me. And definitely I have a very different feeling when I'm speaking a language that reminds me of childhood and family than when I'm speaking a language that reminds me of work and adulthood and professional situations. Now, for some linguists, the very idea of linguistic relativity is actually a controversial one. 
It was the subject of much theoretical debate, but it seemed impossible to prove one way or the other until... In the last 30 years or so, research in my lab and in other labs around the world has started to test these ideas and experiments. And now there's a really rich body of work looking at languages all around the world and how they shape the way we perceive colors, the way we remember events, the way we categorize things, so many different facets of human cognition. Researchers have been able to study linguistic relativity through experiments with bilinguals. This is the work of uh, Viorga Marion at Northwestern. She asked Russian-English bilinguals to tell a story about a birthday party. And what she noticed is that if she asked them to do it in Russian, they would tell the story differently and include different elements than if she asked them to do it in English. Stories in English tended to be from the first person. So you were the most important protagonist in the story. Uh, There were rarely other important humans in the story that were doing things. Stories told in Russian could have been about the same birthday party, but instead they were likely to have other protagonists. They were more likely to be about we than about I. And so just having that linguistic cue of asking someone to tell a story in Russian or in English leads them to remember the event in a different way, retell it in a different light. Lyra says language even changes the way we see the world. So the way languages divide up the color spectrum differs from language to language. Let me give you a simple example. In my native language in Russian, there's not a single word that covers the entire spectrum of colors that English calls blue. Instead, in Russian, you have to make a distinction between light blues and dark blues. So the word for uh, light blues is голубой. The word for dark blues is sini. And in my lab and in lots of other labs, we've looked at how people perceive, make distinctions between colors if they're called by different names in their language. What we notice is that very early on in the perceptual processing system, our brains start to treat colors differently if they're called by different names. Even the way we think about time may be impacted by our language. In English, we say the best is ahead of us, the worst is behind us, so the future is in front, the past is behind. But that's not true in other languages. People used to argue it had to be the case because you know, biologically it makes sense. We walk forwards, not backwards. We have eyes on the front of our heads. That's why we're looking at the future, people would say. But then there's some languages that actually put the future behind them and put the past in front of them. And they say, well, of course, because the future is unknown. That's why you can't see it. The past is known, but you can see it. Of course, it would make sense to have the future behind you and to have uh, the past in front of you. Language influences more than just our perception of color and time. Lyra says it can shape our view of the world. I think the most important thing is to think about how it is that you come to think the way that you do. It's easy to look at speakers of another language and and say, oh, wow, it's so weird that they do things that way. Or how weird that those other people over there see the world differently from me. Uh, But it's a lot more rewarding to look back at yourself and say, oh, isn't it interesting that I've come to think this way because of the patterns in my language? And also that I could think differently, 
that I could see the world in all of these other ways, right? There's not just one way to see the world. We have 7,000 languages. That's 7,000 different realities. That idea really stuck with me. You know, it seems like understanding languages could be a key to understanding each other as humans, too. I know that intuitively makes sense, but think about this at a deeper level. Learning another language could be a way to build bridges across our differences, and not just because we're speaking the same language, but because our view of the world may more closely align. As I've traveled around the world reporting stories for CNN, you know, I've always tried to learn at least a few basic phrases in the local language. I feel like it's a sign of fundamental respect and helps me forge relationships with the people I've met. But it goes deeper than that. It may change the way they actually see me, and I see them. It bonds us on a deeper level that I hadn't really considered before. Now, by the point in this episode, you might be ready to go out and learn a new language yourself. And I encourage you to do so. But what are the best ways to actually do that? What are the best ways to learn a new language? Tip number one, just give it a go. As we learned today, there are so many health benefits like building up cognitive reserve and potentially even delaying the onset of dementia. That leads us to tip number two, which is from Lyra. The goal shouldn't necessarily be perfection. I would say don't worry about making mistakes. No one has ever learned a, a new language without constantly making mistakes. Uh, mistakes are how you learn. Tip number three, do the things you already know and love in the language you're trying to master. I like to sail and I like to fish and I like to walk in the forest and look at plants. And so if I try to go and do those things in another language, I have things to talk about. You know, I have things I want to tell people about fishing and about sailing, <laughs> but also I already understand the context. So because I understand the context, it's easier for me to pick up the new words because I understand the domain. Now I'm just learning how to talk about this domain. Tip four is from psychologist John Schweder. Think of learning a new language as an exercise, an exercise for the brain. No one ever really thinks about learning a new language or just simply being a bilingual as being healthy or as being unexercised because it doesn't, it's not something we can see really the results of on the outside, but we certainly can see the results when we are looking at the inside of the brain. Tip five, try to tap into all of your senses when learning a new language. I do believe that it's best to incorporate all of the domains of language as possible. So not just listening to music in the other language, but follow along with the lyrics, to read along with the lyrics, and also make sure that you're understanding what those lyrics are meaning. Um, and then after, maybe try to say it aloud yourself. And finally, just focus on fun. You have to find something that is going to make it fun to you. You have to raise your motivation to some way that will let you see that you can do it. There has to be some sort of uh, approach to doing it that will click for you. As you've probably heard me say before, I love learning new things. That's part of chasing life for me. So I'm going to definitely be putting these tips into action, and I'm going to think about how I'm harnessing the power of language learning as well and the impact that it's having on my brain. If you're learning a new language, I'd love to hear from you. Record your thoughts as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com or give us a call at 470-396-0832. Leave a message. You can also tweet at me, at Dr. Sanjay Gupta. That's doctor, spelled D-R. We might even include your responses 
on an upcoming episode of the podcast. You know, not long ago, we did an episode about social anxiety, and I asked you to share your experiences putting our tips into action in your day-to-day lives. We got some incredible responses, and there was one in particular that I wanted to share with you. Hi, Sanjay Gupta. My name is Erica. I live in Orlando, Florida. I myself um, have been in cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety for several years now. So when I'm in a point of stress, and I can feel the anxiety um, climbing into my body. I'll go outside um, and I will practice my senses slowly by focusing on things outside, flowers, nature, people, just all the details and the messiness of the good and the bad and all of that. That slowed me down and I would forget what I was anxious about in the first place. Thanks so much to everyone who called in and emailed You know, I really love to hear that these tips and these podcasts are actually helping you and working for you. So please keep in touch and keep the messages coming. We'll be back next Tuesday with an episode about how nature can help our brains and our overall health and why. We'll be talking to Dr. Melissa Lem from PARX Prescription. We want to make nature time the fourth pillar of health, just as important as diet and exercise and healthy sleep. Thanks for listening. Chasing Life is a production of CNN Audio. Megan Marcus is executive producer. Zoe Saunders is the senior producer. Our podcast is produced by Jordan Gaspore, Emily Liu, Xavier Lopez, Isoke Samuel, and Grace Walker. Our production assistant is Allison Park. Our intern is Eduardo Ocampo. Our medical writer, Andrea Kane. Tommy Bazarian is our engineer. And a special thanks to Ben Tinker and Amanda Seeley of CNN Health, as well as Ashley Lusk, Rafina Ahmad, and Courtney Coop from CNN Audio. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.